This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, the question I want to begin with today is, why do we do the things that we do? Okay, now this is kind of a generic question, right? But why do we do the things that we do? And I had a really interesting conversation last week. I was talking to somebody. I especially, uh, you know, met up with him and uh, we organized to have a conversation. I was trying to convince this person to do something which would be very good and very beneficial for a large number of people for quite a long time. But after having a conversation with him, sadly, the person said, actually, I've decided to do this other thing instead. And after we had the conversation, I reflected that the decision that he made in the end would really only be good for one person, which would be himself. And actually, it shouldn't really surprise me, right? Because at the end of the day, that's the natural thing that we do. I mean, we wake up in the morning, and uh, how do we make our decisions? We do things which are good for, for me. I don't wake up in the morning and I think, okay, what am I going to do today, which is good for other people? I wake up in the morning and I think, what's going to be good for me? I think that's generally an axiom which is true. We, we, we live for ourselves. We do what is good for ourselves. But I feel that as Christians, as we come to today's passage in Titus, it tells us that as Christians, we are not like other people. We just don't do things which are good for ourselves, but we do things which are good for other people. So, please come with me to Titus chapter 3, verse 3, which we actually did for Bible study last week. But we're going to look at it in detail today. It begins by saying in verse 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So it begins here by saying, at one time. And the writer of Titus, which is Paul, says that he, together with other Christians, at one time lived in this way. And the way that they used to live and the nature of their living was that they were foolish and that they were disobedient. Now, if you look at the passage, uh, these are all the other different translations that you can see. Foolishness and I think disobedience are sort of a couplet, right? They're, They're sort of paired together. Because the foolishness that is in view here is not the foolishness where I do badly in my exams because, you know, I'm stupid or something. But it's foolish and disobedient because the direction of life that I take is one in which I live in a disobedient way. I live in a way where I don't recognize God, I don't acknowledge God, I don't live in light of the person of God. Now, I think this encapsulates it really well where recently I was reading this book and I didn't know this, but in in England, a group of these atheists took out an advertisement on the back, on these sides of the buses and, uh, and apparently people can wear t-shirts and it says, there is probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, I think this sounds quite uh, catchy and memorable, but if you think of the logic of what is being said, really what is being said at the heart of it is that if there is no God, you can do whatever you want to do, right? You know, if there's probably no God, so don't worry and be happy. What does that really mean? What does it really mean if there's no God, be happy? It means you can go and have affairs, you can have sexual morality, you can take drugs, you can be selfish, you can be rude to other people, you can do all the things that you wouldn't do if you thought there was a God, but 
but you can do it now and you can be happy. Now I think that sort of sums up what this passage is saying, right? It's a foolish and disobedient way of living. You live life as if there's no God and you live life in a way which is disobedient to God. And that was the way that Paul and the people those days, the Christians, were before they became Christian. It also says that they were deceived, it says there, right? They were deceived or led astray. Now, I know that in the NIV, it seems to <coughs> connect the deceived with the enslaved part, but I think that if you see most of the other translations, it's actually standing on its own, and I think it stands on its own. We, before we became Christians, were deceived and, and we were conned or we were led astray. And in a sense, there is an outside agency on ourselves, right? We are, ins- we are sort of deceived and conned and led astray by an outside agent, some like dark, malevolent force, which is conning us and deceiving us and scamming us. It's a bit like, uh, you know, nowadays, there are all these ads everywhere. If you live in the HDB, uh, or if you walk around the next slide, Next slide, yep. About all these ads about scammers on the net, right? You know, don't be conned or scanned or people are deceived by people on the net. And that's effectively what we were living before we became Christians. We were, we were deceived and led astray by all sorts of outside agencies. But I think primarily here is talking about a spiritual force like Satan or the devil, right? It's sort of leading us astray. But it goes on to say that apart from being deceived by this outside agency, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. So here's the idea of where uh, people uh, give themselves or indulge the flesh, the sinful nature, but they don't realize that actually by giving themselves to it and, and indulging it, they're being enslaved by the very passions that they give themselves to. So just this week, I was reading this blog about this guy who was saying that uh, apparently, I was reading this article, I sent it to my kids, I, I thought it was really good, about how, you know, today's world with millennials, there are a lot of uh, people who are uh, like living in another world, right, which is the internet world or the world of your handphone, where, especially like, in things of sexuality and pornography, uh, people just spend more and more time accessing pornography or, you know, living in that sort of world. So I remember reading this uh, article where this guy said that uh, he, he was saying in this blog that he, he actually prefers the other world apart from meeting real women. And then he was saying that, you know, uh, in his whole life, he's only had one uh, like uh, relationship with a real person and that only lasted a month and it was terrible compared to the, the internet world. But I was sort of thinking to myself, well, that's a, the picture of someone who is enslaved by giving himself into the, 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 the sexuality, the pornography of the internet world. And you see that with people who you know, destroy their marriages or get into affairs or you know, destroy their life, where they give themselves and they're enslaved by all sorts of things. But it's not just this terrible picture of the, 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 the internal person because it goes on to say we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now the idea of malice here is the idea of where I lived in ill will, right? I, 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 I live with a sense where I don't really want good for my, my neighbor. I, I have ill will towards them. I'm envious of them, right? You know, the things that they have, I wish I had. The things that 
they have, I feel like they don't deserve and actually I deserve and, and I, I'm negative towards them. I have hostility towards them and they have hostility towards me. I hate them and they hate me back even though outwardly I look as if I like them. Now when you put together this whole package, right, it's one of a great sad life, isn't it? You live life without hope, without meaning, without God. And in every way, we are trapped in this existence. Because if you want to look at how Paul has chosen his words, or how God has chosen his words, we were foolish. So our minds betray us, right? We, 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 we can't think straight. We are disobedient. Our, our hearts are unable to do what is right. Even the environment that we live in, is scamming us and conning us and deceiving us and leading us astray. But our very flesh is enslaving us. We are enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures and our relationships with one another are marked with hostility, ill will and hatred. So, I was thinking, what is the most positive song that, this, that, you know, that we have in the radio which describes the world that we live in? Right, so the most positive song, you know, when you, when you watch movies or you listen to the radio is, is the song by Louis Armstrong called, What a Wonderful World, right? You know, you know, have you ever heard the song, you know, What a Wonderful World, right? Uh, and it gives a picture that we live in such a wonderful world where we love one another, we all get along really well. But it's a lie. It's a lie because, you know, Louis Armstrong, the guy who actually sings this song, his world was not a wonderful world, right? He was born of a 16-year-old girl. She was a drunkard. Uh, he had multiple marriages, multiple affairs. He grew up among uh, prostitutes and, and criminals in New Orleans. Even his own manager was ripping him off. And uh, he split his lip, so, you know, he plays the, the trumpet or whatever, right? Anyway, so, you know, he split his lip, so he couldn't play anymore. But his manager sued him for breach of contract to force him to keep playing. He was friends of gangsters, and because he was friends of gangsters, there was a falling out, and he was forced to leave and to go out to other places. So for him, it was not a wonderful world. And this is the real world that he lived in, and that's the real world that we live in. That is actually not a wonderful world. And that's the whole point of verse 3, right? It's At one time, we used to live in this world. And the point that God is trying to make in verse 4 is, but, but, right, in verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So what's happening here is on one side in verse 3 is all the terrible situation we found ourselves in, conned, scammed, deceived, indulging in the sinful nature. And then now, Paul says, and the Bible says, God says, this is where we are now. This is where we, we are. This is not what we were. This is what we are now. And if you look at this passage, okay, so we're going to be stuck on this this life for a long time, right? So there are many clicks. But the key verse, the key verb is God 
saved us. Okay, God saved us. And everything else in this section explains God saved us. So God saved us how? God saved us when the kindness and love of God appeared. Great. Oh, okay, good, good. Okay, so the kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, this is not talking about God the Father because obviously God the Father doesn't appear here on earth with us, but it's Jesus. Right? The love and kindness of God appeared when Jesus, who is God our Savior, appeared on earth to us. Now, if you come back with me to the earlier picture, remember the picture I showed you from the London bus, which says there is probably no God, right? So be happy and, and enjoy yourself, right? But the thing is, why is there probably no God? Uh, if you think about it, you know, it's a catchy phrase and everything, but it doesn't make sense, right? Because we know that there probably is a God because Jesus Christ, God has appeared. See, imagine if you say to me, hey, you know, Andrew, I don't think Sweden exists, right? You know, Sweden is just, it's just a, you know, I'm not Swedish phobic, right? I just don't believe that there is a country called Sweden. There is no Sweden at all. There are no Swedish people. Then I'll say to you, but, but, but there is a Sweden, right? You know, what, what happened to Abba? Where does Abba come from, right? Uh, where does IKEA come from? Where do Swedish meatballs come from? It must come from this place called Sweden. In the same way, we know that God exists because Jesus appears. But when Jesus appears, it's not just that he appears so that he can prove that God exists. He appears to show us the love and goodness of God. And he shows us the goodness and the love of God in Saving us by justification. Because when Jesus appears and comes on earth, he comes to justify us. Now, when I was much younger, uh, as a young teenager, I, I, I wasn't a Christian then, I had some friends, and they were not very law-abiding. So one of my friends got drunk, and he uh, decided to... Uh, drive his car, which is always a bad idea. And uh, then he ended up running into a, a row of parked cars, right? Like about four cars in a row. And then the police came. So I accompanied my friend to the courts in Singapore. And I had never been to the courts, and he had never been to the courts, and he was really, he was really scared. I was scared for him, right? So anyway, he went to the courts, appeared before the judge. And thankfully, the judge said, okay, we will just give you a fine, Right, suspended sentence, and my friend was so relieved. But here, what God has done through Jesus Christ is to justify us. To justify us means that it's a legal word to say that you are no longer guilty, that you are innocent, that the charges are dismissed. And that's how God the Father saves us because He sends Jesus the Son to come to save us by justifying us of our disobedience and foolish way of living before. Before we were disobedient, before we broke the law, before we were destined for judgment, but Jesus comes to justify us. But it's more than that, because we read here 
Okay, all the other, I think you've got to click four times, right? That the motivation for God saving us is not because we are good people, we are righteous people, but because of the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. Now this is all the more amazing because in the world that we live in, if you go back to verse 3, we don't often receive these things, right? We don't often receive grace, mercy, you know, kindness, all these things. We, we are more likely to receive uh, hate and malice and ill will. That's just the way that, we, that, 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 that most people relate. I mean, I was at the barber shop a few weeks ago and, and the barber was saying, oh, you know, nowadays uh, the internet, so many road rage cases. And then funny thing, straight after my haircut, I was walking across the overhead bridge and there was a commotion downstairs and there was a grab driver and a taxi driver arguing, right? And they're going to fight and there are all these bystanders pulling them apart. That's the world that we live in. But God is so unusual. God is so unique that He relates to us with kindness, goodness, love, mercy and grace and actually saves us. But more than that, He saves us while we were foolish and disobedient we were the ones who were full of hate and ill will, malice and uh, hostility towards our fellow human beings. And at this time, while we were so unlovable and ungodly, God gives us His love. God gives us His grace. God gives us His generosity. Now what a wonderful thing it is. I know that uh, in the Bible study video last week, uh, Simon Manchester was saying that, you know, some people will say, well, I don't need God's charity. I don't need God's help. I can, I can look after myself. But actually, this passage tells us that we can't help ourselves. Right? It's only through God's love, kindness, and mercy that we can be saved. If we could save ourselves, then we wouldn't need God's salvation. But the passage goes on in verse 5 and 6. Right, uh, the next click, I think, where it says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured us out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, some people think, oh, this is talking about baptism, baptism by water. But this is not talking about baptism by water. Okay, this is talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? It doesn't say it never says anything about water. It says through the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on us by Jesus Christ. Now, what the Holy Spirit does here is that it washes us and a washing of rebirth and renewal. Now we have to kind of look at those three verbs closely like washing, rebirth, and renewal. Okay, so it's very important to get the facts right. I remember when I was when I when I was working, somebody said, "Oh, um, hey, your hair looks very nice. Uh, you got it rebonded, is it?" And I was thinking, "What's rebonded? Huh? Reborn? Well, I don't know what I'm talking about, right?" So we need to understand what these terms really mean. Right? So you know, I remember when I went to church many many years ago before I was a Christian. I, I was just visiting a church with a friend. He was trying to evangelize me. It was, it was really good that, that this person did that. And, and uh, the, the pastor was saying, oh, you know, when you become a Christian, you like go to the washing machine. And then you wash, 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 and you come out, you're very clean, right? Then I was thinking to myself, hey, but that doesn't make sense, right? Because then, does that mean you have to go to the washing machine many, many times 
But then after a while, you know, you wash your clothes. The, clo- the clothes get older and older, right? Not so nice. But it doesn't say washing by over and over again. It says the washing of rebirth. So it's the idea of being washed clean by being reborn. Like born again. You become a new person. It's not what the, this old preacher called Chrysostom said. It's like you have, you're an old building and you're like knocked down and you build a new building in place of where the old building was. Right? You are reborn into a new person who doesn't have all these old qualities, but now you are washed clean. You are now washed of all your own indul- old indulgence into these pleasures and passions. And that's a similar idea to the idea of renewal. Right? Be new. You're new. You become new in the new person. Now, isn't it fascinating? Because from a systematic theological point of view, if you look carefully at this passage, it takes three persons of the Trinity to save you. Right? God the Father, through His love, His kindness, His goodness, He is the one who sends Jesus, the Son, to appear to justify you, who then pours out the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in order to wash you clean as a new person. Now what is the point of the efforts of the three persons of the Trinity in order to come all the way to do this for you? Well, it says there in verse uh, verse 7, right? So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, when you become an heir, you inherit what your parents have, right? I mean, hopefully, if you... If your parents don't like you, maybe you inherit nothing. But generally, as an heir, you inherit what your parents have. What, what, what does God the Father have that we don't have? He has eternal life, right? We inherit the hope of eternal life. That is the point of our salvation, right? That's the point of our justification, the point of our being reborn. Now, this is so important. And the point that is being made here in verse 3 and 4 is, is who we are and where we are going. So I read this corny joke in this book a few weeks ago where it says, you know, that these two dr- sailors and they're drunk and then it's time for them to go back to their ship but then outside there's a big fog so they don't know where they're going. They walk outside, there's something around. They bump into this person and they said, Hey mate, do you know the way back to the docks? And the person they bump into is this Navy Admiral like. And the Navy Admiral says to these two sailors, says, Do you know who I am? And then the two sailors say, Crikey, we're really in trouble. We don't know where we are going, and this fellow doesn't know who he is. Now, the, 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 the reality of what we're reading here is, who are we, and where are we going? So before, we were people who were, were deceived by Satan, we were people who were enslaved by our passions, we were people who who lived foolish and disobedient lives, and we were going to judgment and hell. But now, we are those who are saved. Saved by the love of God. We are justified by the coming of Jesus. We are washed by the Holy Spirit. And where are we going? We are going to eternal life. Now because of that, because of all these things that God has done for us, therefore in verse 8 it says, This is a trustworthy saying. 
And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now, here we, we want to go back to the bigger picture of the whole of Titus, right? Because this is a theme which flows through the whole of Titus, which is doing good, right? Doing good. So here it says that we must be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. See, the background to the book of Titus, if you look at the next slide, uh, the next one, is that uh, they, uh, Paul had sent uh, Titus there because, um, uh, Timothy there and Titus there, because what was happening was the people there had wrong teaching and were living wrongly. Right? They had the wrong theology, wrong lifestyle. So you know they, were, they believed in all sorts of weird things, including the law. And as a result, they were living for themselves, right? They were doing good for themselves. So what was meant to be done was, the next slide, click, thanks. So elders were meant to be appointed, okay, next two slides, who would then teach rightly and then lead to right living. Okay, so you can, uh, the, the next slide. So you can see there's actually a pattern, uh, if you actually bother to go look at the book of Titus. There's a pattern where every time Paul talks about this is the right teaching, Therefore, this must be the right living. Now, if you come back to chapter 3, it says that they are to be devoted to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So the response to what God has done for us is to do good, not just for ourselves, but to do good so that it benefits everyone. And that includes Christians and non-Christians. So there's this uh, very negative thing, right? People say, oh, you're just a do-gooder. You know, when people say that, they're not really praising you. Uh. It's actually kind of like a negative thing, right? When people say, oh, you're a do-gooder, uh, you're just, it's not really saying, yeah, we really think it's a good thing, right? But in a sense, that's what we are told to do, right? As Christians, we are meant to be do-gooders. And the do-gooders are meant to do good not just for themselves, but so that it would be profitable and excellent for everyone. Now, I think that this is an important message for us as it comes to evangelism. Because in this week's passage, in the Bible study, next slide, Paul says that he also wants to do good. But as he seeks to do good, he's seeking the good not of himself, but he's seeking the good of many, so that they may be saved. Because you can do many, many good things, right? You can buy food for the poor, you can buy, you can buy tissue paper from the lady uh, at the hawker center, you can, um, you can do all sorts of good, but what is the best good that you can do for people? It is to save their souls from hell and judgment. And I think this is what we really, really have to wake up in the morning and to decide to do. When you pray for people, do you pray that you may have a good conversation with them and save them from hell? When you 
spend time talking to people? Do you spend time just talking about other things apart from the greatest good, which is to save them from judgment? Someone was saying, and uh, this is a very colloquial thing, the, the main game, the main game is not what happens at church, right? Because, you know, it's very easy to talk to one another about Christian things. I mean, in a sense, it's expected that we talk to each other about Christian things. The main game is when you're talking to your colleague at lunch, or you're talking to your relative at home, or you're talking to your friend on the sporting field. At that point in time, will you be willing to share Jesus Christ with them? Would you be willing to do good for them by telling them of God coming to save us, appearing as Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit freeing us from the bondage of our slavery to sin. Because if you received all these things from God, then the response, God tells us, is to do good to others. Not to do the natural thing, which is to do good for myself. So in conclusion, uh, recently I sent an email saying that's this really good website I, call, I found called The Pastor's Heart and I was watching one of the short videos there and there was a really interesting uh, short video by this guy who wrote a lot of books and I'm sure some of you have read it um, and he was saying that uh, the great danger for Christians is that we can be like consumers. You know, we want the next big thing. We, next, we want the next big conference. We want the next big church camp. But he said that actually in his many, many, many years as a pastor, He's realized the, the benefit of the rhythm of weekly church service, of weekly Bible study, of the monthly Holy Communion and the Lord's Supper and the, the, the regular Christian fellowship we have with one another. He said this is God's grace to us, you know, because when we come together on a regular basis, we're not here to fill our minds, right? Even though, yeah, we learn new things, but we are here to meet God and in a cumulative way to grow in our love for God and grow in our response to God. He said, this wonderful illustration that I thought was wonderful, he said, you know, when a wife and a husband come together for a wedding anniversary, what do they want, right? They don't want new information, about each other. I mean, it's not as if I come together on the wedding anniversary and I give you new information about myself. In fact, when they come together at a wedding anniversary, they're actually telling each other what they've already told each other on the wedding day, right? That, you know, that they love one another, they care for one another, they appreciate one another, and how much they value one another. It's not like, oh, you already told me that when we got married, lah. Why do you need to tell me that again, right? It's not, no. Right? It's like at the wedding anniversary, you, you, you say that again, you reaffirm that, and that's like coming to church, right? When we meet God in the Bible, we're being reminded over and over again and it affects our minds and our hearts and our will that, that this is what God has done for us. He loved us. He gave us grace. He gave us mercy. He saved us. He sent Jesus to justify us. The Holy Spirit comes. He washes us clean. He renews us. And He makes us reborn, right? And therefore, now we are heirs to eternal life. So what should be our response? Our response should be to do good other people. So I think that as we come to today's passage, it's a really wonderful reminder to myself as well, to ask myself, am I really doing good to others? 
And especially am I doing good to others in the same way that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians? To want to save their souls. When I talk to them one-to-one, when I'm just having a casual conversation, am I looking for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Because that's what God tells me that I need to do because now I'm a new person. I'm a new person and I don't live the old way. I live the new way where I want to see good done for them. I want to share with them the good things that God has done for me as well. Okay, so let's go to God in prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we will truly be thankful in our hearts For at one time, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were enslaved by the evil powers of this world. Even our very flesh, our own sinful nature, uh, was uh, enslaving us to passions and pleasures which are destructive to us. We live life in hostility to other people, with ill will, malice, envy, hate, hostility. But now, not because of ourselves, but because of your great love, mercy, grace, goodness, kindness, generosity, Jesus Christ, your Son, appeared to justify us by dying on the cross. And that through Jesus, He poured out the Holy Spirit on us so that we are new people, we are washed, we are reborn, we are renewed. And now we have the certain hope of eternal life. We are heirs to all of heaven. So dear Father, help us today in our minds, and our hearts, and our wills to truly desire to want to do good to other people. And especially to share the good news of Jesus with them so that they too may be saved. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busytc.sg.